suppose the big question today is, uh, I'll put it on top of your sheets actually, how should Christians respond to opposition? How should Christians respond to opposition? I was reading just uh, this last week in the southern Indian state of Tamil Nadu. Legislation has been uh, gone through uh, the parliament and it's meant that to be a Christian is now illegal um, and to convert from Buddhism to Christianity uh, is utterly forbidden and you are in fear of your life if you do so. Churches have been burnt down, Christians have been beaten and enslaved. Christian families have been split up. The police are now just standing back and doing nothing if violence is, is, it goes towards a Christian. So how should Christians in India today respond to that kind of opposition? Bring it a little closer to home, just a few thousand miles, but under Islamic Sharia law, the penalty for converting to Christianity is not just a beating and imprisonment, it's actually death. Uh, therefore, violence against Christians in many countries, which you know, Middle East and so on, is therefore utterly accepted. Though state law in many of those places states that you cannot kill someone outside of the remit of law, Sharia law trumps that, and therefore it is accepted and a normal part of society. But how should countries um, in Islamic, how, how should Christians in Islamic countries? respond to that kind of opposition? And this is not a hypothetical question. That is the reality of our world today. People have died today, will will die tomorrow and the following day. And all they have done is said, I'm a Christian. And they want to testify to that amazing truth of their life. I hope the pain and the suffering that I've just very given you a tiny little snapshot of Um, Of Christians around the world, I hope it puts our situation into a little bit of perspective. But the question for this afternoon is, it's not alien to our lives, is it? Because we face, I guess, a bit of ridicule from our friends every now and then. Maybe even hostility in our families. Prejudice at work. But they, They may seem small in comparison to facing a gun. But we know that they're real. We feel them as significant, and we fear, don't we, some of the circumstances and conversations that we may have this week. We may have family and friends applying pressure to us, saying something like this, and it's subtle, isn't it? You know, are you just taking it a bit too seriously? Aren't you a little bit kind of over the top, a bit fundamental? It's a poor use of that term, but people use it, don't they? And we get it from churches and institutions as well. We face discrimination all the time. Sometimes us as a corporate um, group, our our church has done. I've even faced legal action. Simply because you want to faithfully and graciously teach the Bible. And I always describe myself, as I would say I'm an evangelical. That is, I want to teach the Bible. And with that, I want to have a humble orthodoxy. I want to faithfully teach what is in the Bible, but do it with a humility that says, I'm no better than you. I'm equal in God's eyes as a sinner, and I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's humble orthodoxy. But that is not not popular in our culture today. I'm just, in God's sovereignty, I I guess, um, a very good friend of mine, uh, who's a a minister up in Glasgow, in a place called St. George's Tron, um, just this week, 
has been told by the Presbytery of the Church of Scotland that the building that they inhabit, that is the congregation of about six to 800 in the centre of Glasgow, and they have to vacate that building now in the next month. And they also, the family, have to get out of the manse, which is the, the church house which they live, within the next couple of weeks. All because they want to teach the Bible faithfully. I'll read a portion of his um, prayer that he prayed before the church just last week. Um, let me just read it. It finishes like this. So, O Lord, look upon us as men. Do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And grant us, your servants, to go on speaking your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to do wonders through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you alone are the King and the Judge of us and of all men. And in that truth we rest our souls in peace and we look to your salvation. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour's name. Amen. Extraordinary. And I think what Willie Philip, my good friend, has prayed there is everything that we will see in our passage today. How should we respond to opposition in our own lives? Whether it's blatant, like I've just read out and described, or it's very subtle, maybe friends and family. What should our response be? Well, looking in Acts 4, Luke records how the the early church responds to the opposition that they felt. The, the obvious opposition was Peter and John. They'd been arrested. They'd been put in front of the Sanhedrin, that very intimidating group of Jews. We saw that last week. The trial, the threats of the Sanhedrin, this, this council in Jerusalem. Let's just turn our eyes back to chapter 4, verse 19, and see how Peter and John responded. Just cast your eyes down there. They said, in front of this intimidating crowd of men, judge for yourselves whether it's right to say right in God's sight, to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You see, the Sanhedrin, as we saw um, a couple of weeks ago, they, they'd attempted to kind of quash, to restrict everything that Peter and John were doing. They healed this, um, uh, this cripple in front of the, the beautiful gate in Jerusalem, and they could not stop them. Peter and John, were not, they were not going to have them being restricted by this council of men. They boldly refused to stop doing gospel work, to proclaim the name of Jesus. It was just not an option in their heart and mind. That's the response of Peter and John. That's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. What we get to now, in the end of chapter 4, is the response of the church. It's of all of us. Remember the context. You glance at the text and you kind of look down and say, ah, yeah, they're taking their stand here. They're they're, at such a distance, they can feel comfortable. It's just, you know, it's not a problem. They just remember a few weeks earlier, their Lord, their Saviour, had been hung on a cross by the same group of men. The threat to this church was real. It was close and potentially fatal. So what did they do? Let's cast our eyes down. Verse 23, let's remember. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. Now literally, that is, is a lovely little Greek word. It's basically their friends. He's saying he went back to their friends. And he chooses that word particularly, because that's what a church should be. The friends. And he reported that all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So what did they do? Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in anger. No, in prayer. 
to God. Now, so our first point on our sheets there, sorry we haven't got the, the overhead today, I'm sorry about that. But they raise their voices together in prayer. Prayer is how we respond to any opposition. When we hear of situations around the world where Christians are facing death, India, in the Middle East, wherever it may be, our response should be prayer. Straight away. Because you can guarantee that's what our brothers and sisters are doing around the world. They're praying. It's a theme that runs the whole way through the book of Acts. If you cast your eyes back to chapter 1 verse 14, chapter 2 verse 46, chapter 5 verse 12, the same phrase comes up. They met together to pray. They always did. Utterly dependent on God in opposition. And what did they pray at? Well, we're going to look at their prayers right now. Verses 24 through to verse 31. Firstly, they prayed, a little sub-point there, recognising God's sovereignty over their opponents. See, it's amazing this, isn't it? They're facing terrible opposition. What was the first thing they do? They don't say, please help me. They recognise who God is. That's the first thing they pray for. No doubt frightened. But they begin their prayers recognising that God is the sovereign Lord. And being sovereign implies he's absolute master, supreme over the whole earth. So they reckon, that together they recognise that despite their current situation, the, the opposition that they're facing, it doesn't matter, God is sovereign over it, provides perspective. And that is... Not an easy thing to grasp when you're facing opposition or when you're going through any struggle in life. Whether it's a relationship issue, whether it's a work issue, a redundancy issue, a financial issue. That is not an easy thing to recognise first and foremost, is it? God, you're sovereign over this. Because it feels like everything around you is utterly out of control. But look at their example. No, God is utterly in control. And the church rehearsed these facts that they know to be true about God. I'm going to run through them very quickly. Three facts that they rehearse about the truth of who God is and his sovereignty. Firstly, verse 24, they say, you made the heavens and the earth. That's what the little kids are going to be remembering this morning, actually. Uh, this morning, this evening, afternoon, we're there. Okay. That is, they're going to say, they're saying here, in their prayers, you made everything God. And if you've made everything, you're in control of everything. Despite the chaos that it may seem, you are. They are stating that truth to themselves. And that is true of any circumstance, anything that you find in your life. Your marriage, your lack of marriage, your lack of money, the money you have. God is in control of it all. Secondly, verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. We'll see in a moment through Psalm 2 as he uses that. That the Lord has predicted everything. Described their opposition that they would be facing way back in the Old Testament. Everything that was happening to this church in Jerusalem was under his control. And had been foretold. Thirdly, verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided before happened, beforehand should happen. That is the Lord who predetermined absolutely everything. Everything that they were seeing around them, however chaotic it seemed, was under his sovereign control. So any opposition to Christians in, in this world, wherever you look, however terrible it seems, 
has been allowed, careful choice of word there, allowed by God himself. No event can be accounted for by just kind of plain chance in that way. We cannot ever see you know, God as just the, uh, the creator, but not the sustainer. He's not like some grand architect that makes a beautiful building in the centre of London and sort of goes through the great plans, gets the building built, and then sort of nips back to his lovely air-conditioned office. No. You've got to see God not only as the great architect, but also the great um, caretaker, buildings manager, janitor. He is absolutely everything, in everything, over everything, at every minute detail. He is sovereignly in control. See, God has not left the future undecided. Some theologians are convinced of that these days for various reasons. We can go into those later if you like. But he is not sitting on his throne in heaven at this moment speculating with the angels saying, do you know know, guys who's going to win the uh, Six Nations this year? Uh, You know, it's not sort of getting Gabriel to do a sweepstake in the heavenly office and sort of saying, who's going to pick France today? You know, it's nothing like that. He knows England will win. No, he knows... Someone will win. <laughs> Who I quite like to put some. No, no, he knows. He's sovereign. God doesn't just intervene in this world and sort of claim all the good things for himself. No, what we learn in this passage is that even when Christians were facing this terrible opposition and just moved forward 30 years and hundreds, thousands are being killed by Nero. I mean, you know. Even in these most terrible times of opposition, for making the gospel known and making the gospel apparent in their lives. This passage is showing us that God is in control of that. Yes, these are the works of evil people and and, and nasty people and even the work of Satan. But also in his fatherly goodness, God is directing everything in history. I guess one of the best case studies for this in the Bible is the man Job in the Old Testament. And let me just quote one little passage from Job. Job 12, verse 23. It simply says, speaking of God, he makes the nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. It's a kind of summary text in the book of Job, but he's, he's really saying there that it's God who directs everything. Wherever you look in this world... Even if it's Al-Qaeda. Wherever you look. He is allowing various acts to happen. Under his sovereign control. You will know if you were in your Bible studies last year. I mean home groups. We went through the book of Genesis in a year. And when we got to the end. You might have missed it. Sleepy last night of home groups in, in 2012. We got to Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. It's one of the most amazing case studies for this Sovereign work through the evil actions of men. And Joseph says to his brothers who had already sold him into slavery and expected him to be killed. Joseph says this to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And ultimately we see this in the death of Jesus himself on the cross. And we've seen this already in Acts, haven't we? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by chance. By, you know, the evil, terrible people who didn't know. It says, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. 
And that is not saying God is the cause or the origin of the evil things that were done to Christ and to anyone. Philosophically, you say God is not the prime mover in any of those actions. He's a secondary cause, and we can talk about that later if you like. No, he's saying Satan or individuals within history, they must be held and will be held responsible for their actions. And they'll be judged for them. But nevertheless, God sovereignly employs people and their evil actions as instruments within a greater and bigger sovereign plan. Therefore, God, although he is not our opponent, he is the one we should be turning to. Even when things are, you know terribly happening around us we're facing lots of opposition he is the one we should be turning to because he is the sovereign one notice how these people understand the opposition to themselves as an extension though as an opposition of the whole world to jesus christ you see that they turn to psalm 2 have a look at that though if you want in verse um, 25 and 26 they're basically showing how futile the nations and the rulers are for plotting against god in psalm 2 his anointed one is pointed out there Namely, Jesus. And they see verse 27 as being the fulfilment of that quote from Psalm 2. So you see that the kings and the rulers of Psalm 2 are plotting against the, um, to de- kind of dethrone King David. He's saying, that's Herod and Pilate. He's pointing it out, how this kind of passage works. And then he's saying, the nations of the, uh, and people of Psalm 2, they're matched with the city of Jerusalem, verse 27. The Lord and the anointed one of Psalm 2 are kind of God and his holy servant. Again of verse 27. See, what happened in David's time is now being kind of fulfilled in Acts 2. As it is today. And what this shows is that the opposition faced by Christians today is, is not because of the foolishness or the recklessness of Christians in India. Or in various, various Islamic countries. It's not because they're being, oh, they were a bit silly, not quite savvy enough with the locals. No. Psalm 2 and Acts 4 very plainly show us that this is just one part of a bigger hostility that not only Christ faced, but Christ follows will always face wherever we find ourselves in the world. There is hostility against God and his anointed one Christ, and that will always be the case. Much of this world, though that proportion is getting smaller because there are more and more Christians in the world today than there ever has been. And that number is growing and growing and growing exponentially. But much of the world that is left who aren't Christians are united. They're united in one thing. And that is their hostility towards Christ, the anointed one of Psalm 2, and his followers. Namely you and me. The servants too, verse 29, will face opposition. And when we do, we need to know what we need to do at that point. Remember that God is sovereign in your prayers. But also be comforted in the fact that there always will be justice in the end, as Psalm 2 points us toward. See, they quote from Psalm 2 because the psalm speaks of God who, who laughs. He laughs at the futile, simple acts of man to try and stop him and his work. But the anointed is already enthroned. 
That is, Jesus is risen. He sits at the right hand of his Father. For all the opposition that Christians and the church will face in this world today, tomorrow, and any time that comes, it's futile. And Psalm 2 says God laughs at it. Because there's no point. Jesus' work is complete. And he's sovereign over everything. They can't stop it. They can beat us. They can even kill us. But no one will thwart God's plans. And also nothing will go unnoticed. They will all be judged. See, if you get some ridicule this week for being a Christian, remember these three things. One, God has permitted it. God has allowed it in his sovereign fatherly plan. Secondly, it is a part of a world which is uh, full of hatred towards God's anointed one, his holy one, his son Jesus. And thirdly, in the end, justice will be done. And notice we don't pray to stop the opposition. You notice that with the church here? They don't say, please stop. They remember who God is. They rehearse that truth. But more importantly, they continue to pray and ask for God's help to keep going. And secondly, we see in verse 29 to 31, they request God's power to speak boldly. Do you see that? <coughs> Cast your eyes down verse 29 if you can. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Firstly, they ask to consider God to consider the threats that are coming towards them. Look at verse 29, it's there. Asking God in his wisdom to see whether this is a real threat and kind of assess the situation. I guess what they're doing there is saying, because we love our comfort and ease, and we all do, I think they're saying, actually, our judgment may be clouded here. God, please give us a considered assessment of the opposition that we face. Because it's only God who consider properly and know what is to be done. Secondly, they ask for God's help to speak boldly, despite the consequences. What a crazy prayer. We're all sort of going, are you mad? You know, that, that, that's my initial response when I look at that. They ask God for the strength to do the thing that has caused the opposition. Isn't that extraordinary? It's like digging yourself a bigger hole, isn't it? You know, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to do. And Christians around the world will pray this prayer knowing they pray in, in defiance of the law of their land. But with the law of God in their hearts, they serve the living God and Saviour Jesus Christ and they continue to speak boldly. All I can say to myself is, may I do likewise. Brothers and sisters, will die all around the world today and we must, I guess, let their deaths challenge us. To how bold we are amongst our friends, amongst our family, amongst those who we live around. To speak the word of God to them in love. Can you imagine the conversations when you get to heaven? Can you imagine it? You're there at the bar, the pig and whistle in heaven. It's redeemed, it's looking perfect. You know, and, and there you are, you, you kind of sidle up to someone at the bar. And they say to you, uh, you know, they're from India. 
And they were burnt alive at the age of 30-odd, and their family died with them. And they turn to you at the bar, and they say to you, uh, what kind of opposition did you face? And, and how did you speak and proclaim the gospel to those around you? And if I were there right now in glory and eternity at the Pig and Whistle Bar, redeemed, I think I'd probably hang my head in shame at points. See, opposition is inevitable to those who dare to speak the gospel with boldness. And I guess what we see here in the prayer of the Church of Jerusalem, though the opposition was massive, I think we need to pray to not be fearful and know that God will enable us if we pray to him. Lastly, look at verse 30 though, quickly. Um, They ask the Lord to stretch out his hand in power. And he does this through extraordinary means, doesn't he? Through his apostles, there's all these kind of wonders, healings, miracles. Now, when, when signs and wonders came in the Bible, it was kind of a... It was a tipping point, if you like, a change in God's, uh, not a change, but a movement of God's work amongst his people. Time of deliverance, generally. And we see that with Moses, you see that with Elijah and Elisha as well. And it happens now for Christ. It is a great work of God and it's happening for his apostles, as we record in Acts. God was delivering his people from death. And the power of Satan, as he is today. Now, we may not get the signs and wonders that you know, we can read about in the book of Acts again and again. But the amazing thing is, there is a sign and a wonder sat right next to you. And you just need to open your eyes. Your brother and sister in Christ sat in this room beside you is no less a miracle, no less a wonder. You just need to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel that has worked in them as it has worked in you. But we still need God's power, don't we, to help us as we falter in conversations, as we miss opportunities. We need to pray to God, just help me get the gospel out. Who's that person in your mind? Person at work. Maybe even the person that as you come out the door all bleary eyed in the morning and you always see them walking down that same road on the way to Earlsfield Station or whichever station you go to and you've never said a word. I wonder if it's that person you need to just say, hmm, nice weather or start a conversation over weeks, over days, over months. We need to ask God to stretch out his hand and empower us to speak the gospel with boldness and work mightily in our hearts and the hearts of our friends. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I did think about getting some big speakers in here and see if we can rumble the floor at that point, but it wasn't going to happen. This is what happened as a result of their prayer. The room was shaken. God showed his presence among them. Even though we can't expect that in this era of God's salvation history. Because we don't see it anywhere else in the New Testament. We can expect to know his presence amongst his people. Jesus Christ promises to be with all his people. Intimately wherever we go. In the office tomorrow. 
wherever your place of work is, he is there. At your home, even when you're having a blazing argument with your wife, he's there. When you're at the gym, he's there. He is absolutely everywhere, in our hearts, by his spirit. And when we face opposition, he's there. Notice they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now it's not that they get a second portion. Oh, we got the first bit, the first one, now we're getting another bit. No, it's not that. They, they rather, that the Spirit fills, or is allowed to, every, es- every aspect of their lives. Every little bit. Drenched with the Holy Spirit, if you like. Governing everything that we do. I guess what we're seeing here in the church is that they weren't hiding things away. Saying, oh, God, you can't govern that bit of my life. That's for me. They were saying, it's all for you. The Spirit enters and is allowed to govern every aspect of their lives. So whatever it may be, we've all got those little portions, haven't we? That we like to hide away. Maybe it's just the way we are asked you to drink. What we look on the TV. Maybe a relationship or lack of relationship. The church here allowed the spirit to fill every bit of their lives. They allowed God to govern everything. The spirit was to govern it all. And when we let the spirit do his work, he empowers us to be obedient to God, to his word. So they, they did, in response, verse 31, they spoke the word of God boldly. It's amazing that, isn't it? We kind of fight against it so often. We say, oh God, you can't come into this bit of my life, and so on. And then you feel so restricted, don't you, in your conversations, in your attitudes, in your godliness, in your walk in faith. Everything is just held back. Because you just hold back that one portion of your life. May the church in Jerusalem be a great example to all of us. They simply said, Spirit, everything is yours. Every attitude, every relationship. And look what happened. Despite the opposition, they still spoke the word of God boldly. They proclaimed it with less fear, for they knew the sovereign Lord would enable them and be with them. What a challenge. I've been so humbled this week in this passage. Now you're probably frightened at this stage, thinking, gosh, we've got a lot of verses to go. Don't panic. We're nearly there. So uh, we've nearly finished. Let's go complimentary, kind of 32 to 36. They, they kind of show kind of the outcome of facing opposition. So very brief, briefly, when faced with opposition, they were in one heart and one mind. See, opposition unifies, doesn't it? We see that in verse 32. They were loyal to one another, but they were, more importantly, they were loyal because of the gospel and loyal to the gospel. They were one in heart and one in mind. I don't know if you've seen this email floating around. Um, I got sent it the other day again. I've had it so many times. But it, it, it kind of is an expose of how the lack of unity in the church can be a very, very poor representation uh, of the gospel sometimes. It's like this. It, it's basically depicting one guy meets another guy on a bridge. He's about to jump and kill himself. And it goes like this. One day, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do, do you believe in God? And he said, yes. I said, are you a Christian? And he went, yes. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? And he said, Protestant. I said, me too. And he said, yes, it's great. And he said, what denomination? He said, he said, Baptist. I said, me too. 
Yes, it's all, all, all kind of working out. And he said, are you a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? <laughs> Getting a bit American now, but just bear with it. He said, he said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern Region. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1879. (laughs) Or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him off. You see, it's, um, it's a terrible, terrible email. But it does expose somewhat the, the absolute failure of the church sometimes. The failure of the church. Because if we try to unite in anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will miserably fail. And that is what we see here. They're united, and they're not united in various denominational divides or whatever it may be. They're united in one thing and one thing alone, and it's the gospel that Jesus died and rose again. And that should be the same for us. We ought to look to work with and support anyone, our Christians and brothers and sisters around the world in the local area, if they're united in this one thing and this one thing alone. So they were in one heart and mind, united in the gospel. And then I I put down there, they're continuing to testify to the resurrection. See, the reason they were facing opposition was because they were proclaiming that Christ was risen. The Sanhedrin hated that idea. So we need to be together on this, clear on the gospel, united in it, loyal and faithful to one another, supporting and praying for each other as we endeavour to make Christ known exemplified in the Jerusalem church. They were united in the resurrection of the Jesus Christ, his power over death. And so, if, you're, if we are united in this, and we're supporting one another in this, when did you last invite someone to hear the gospel? Have you allowed yourself way too much comfort? And if you're you're already saying to yourself, oh, I haven't got anyone to ask, then the answer is yes. You've allowed yourself way too much comfort. And maybe that has gone on for way too long. We have Christmas approaching, we've got carol services, we've got wine tasting even. Apparently we might even do a whiskey tasting even. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds fun. But for one purpose and one purpose alone, To invite our friends to hear the good news of the resurrected Jesus Christ. We need to bring anyone that moves if we believe this gospel. Now this loyalty to each other and in purpose in the face of opposition. It's exposed in this rather strange little case study regarding possessions. Characterised down to verse 34 to 36. Very quickly fulfilling the practical needs of the community is shown here. Now notice it wasn't a commune. If you think it was like some hippie commune here. But no one went without. That is the the obvious thing here. Those blessed with wealth gave their wealth, but not all of it, but enough. With a purpose, so the needy were no longer needy. Why did they do that? So that all weren't worried about money, but all could go and preach the gospel. 
to, to finish, I'm going to finish in a, in a bit of a different way than I normally would, because time is pressing. I have purposely not, I've purposely chosen not to teach chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Today was meant to be our annual. We only talk about giving once a year, and I give a presentation on finance. I was going to do it today. I hope you understand why I haven't done it, given chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Because I felt it would have been manipulative. But I challenge you to read chapter 5, verse 1 to 11 tonight. If you think you can come here every week, look the part, say all the right things, go to your home groups, all that kind of stuff, but hold back using the gifts that God has given to you to help his gospel be made known, then be warned. I think Ananias and Sapphira is the biggest warning. You know, I'm not expecting you to put money at the floor, nothing like that, and you'd be, you know, kind of stretched out, dead, right? Not that. That is not the teaching point here. The point is hypocrisy. They were hypocrites. Ananias, together with his wife, died. They were deceiving and they were lying. They appeared all holy and dutiful. But when faced with opposition, the church there, they were exposed. They faced Peter and John and the the other apostles and they'd been keeping back part of their money And they face the ultimate penalty. You see, God knows all of our gifts. He knows your worries. He knows your failings. And he is sovereign over all of those things. And the warning, I think, of chapter 5, verse 1 to 11 is, don't hold anything back from God. Even if it is your failings. Even if it is your worries. Even if it is your money. Don't hold it back. Be warned from hypocrisy. Rather, follow the example of the Church of Jerusalem. For when they faced opposition, what did they do? They just simply, humbly submitted themselves to their sovereign Lord, recognizing his control over all things. And we need to do the same. Praying that God would enable us, by his spirit, and that he would fill our whole lives and govern our whole lives. Why? For the same reason the church in Jerusalem. So we might speak boldly of Christ. To I think a fairly needy world around us. As I mentioned at the dinner. There are just over 10,000 people in Earlsfield. The voting ward. And way, way, way less than 1,000 people. In the churches of Earlsfield. I think there's a needy world out there. And I think God has given us gifts. To speak the gospel boldly to them. Let's pray that we do that. I'm going to use the words of a prayer of a good friend who's facing opposition right now. As I prayed before. So, O Lord, look upon us as men to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And grant us, your servants, to go on speaking your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to do wonders through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you alone are the King and the Judge of us and of all men. And in that truth we rest our souls in peace and we look to you for our salvation. Amen.